Hello? Hello? It's all around us. Here we are for our second attempt at trying to interview Stephen Coates. I think that's how his name is pronounced with xrayaudio.com. The first interview that I did was beautiful. It was awesome. The guy was great. We hit it off really well. Nothing recorded. So this week I've got Patrick from Almost Educational back because you are a history buff and this is kind of something that you might actually cover on your show. And um, you were supposed to be here originally, but because of your job and things being the way they were, you just couldn't make it. So this time around, we're going to try again. I've got two recording programs going. You're recording on your end, and we're going to try to give this another shot. And hopefully, with you being here, we'll be able to give Steve a different interview. So how are you good, sir? How, how are you doing? Oh, uh, good. Uh, like I said, super busy. Like uh, all these great grand plans for during quarantine to record all this stuff that the work life has occupied the computers. Eh, so, so, yeah. <laughs> so there's been no, no chance of doing so, but this segues. Well, I've held back on a show. Dennis and I recorded about, um, the, about the, the entertainment aspect of the cold war, like a cultural cold war, like a hidden history, mm-hmm. uh, that shaped a lot of art and film. And I was like, you know what, we're going to hold this and I'm going to do one mega show or break them into two shows. And, and I'll piggyback on yours. I was so upset the two weeks ago, that I was secretly a little happy that you couldn't record <laughs> that your recording stuff broke. <laughs> you no, did no, it. I, it was you. No, 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 no. I, I didn't put any magic to the, the internet to destroy it. But uh, yeah, this was when you. Now it's funny when you first said, "Hey, this is up your alley." I, I vaguely remember like uh, Soviet smuggling stuff, mm-hmm. but not bone records. Like the the concept of an X-ray bone record was totally new to me. Yeah. And so this was a rabbit hole and a half for me. I go down these – that's what me and you were talking about before recording. I, I very frequently will get on the internet and I go down these really deep rabbit holes, specifically going out and hunting and looking for content and looking for new and different things. And I'm also very much into techno and electronic music and things like that. And I came across this guy who was uh, – I think he was called Mr. DJ or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. But in Russia, they didn't – they weren't allowed to have records or turntables and this guy was a DJ. So you see the usual DJ setup of the time, two turntables and a mixing board. Um, God, I almost started singing back there. But um, yeah. so you got two turntables, a mixer and stuff. Well, in Russia, they didn't have that, but they did have reel-to-reel tapes. So this guy would get these two reel-to-reel tape machines and a mixing board, and he would mix records the same way that you mix turntables, but with tape decks. And I was like, wow, this is really crazy. And then I followed that rabbit hole, which led me to X-Ray Audio, which basically... 
we're going to go into it, of course, but this is a period of time in, in Russia during the Soviet Union when everything was very strictly controlled and people would bootleg records from America, uh, Beatles, Chuck Berry, jazz, which is one of the things that mo both me and you found crazy that Russia did not like jazz. And they would take these and they would bootleg these records onto x-ray film that they would get from hospitals. They would throw away. And it's this concept of um, that people wanted this music so badly that they would hunt these people down to get these bootlegs that they can only play a few times because the record quality is the quality of the recording was so crap because of the, what they recorded it on. And the whole thing just really fascinated me. It was this strange underground culture that you never hear anything about. And apparently, um, and I'm going to ask him about this too, a lot of people in Russia still to this day don't really know about this. And... It was this moment that burned really bright, very intensely. It was very private and hidden. And and then it was gone, you know, which, I, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I think part of what you had is the, the fleeting nature of the, the medium as well, right? Like none of these things were, I mean, you do have what you have, but they're poorly designed. So they're not going to last for, for the ages anyway. So mm -hmm. all of this is going to exist in like an oral history uh, unless we have some of those recordings to prove they really existed. And then it's like, you know, going back and piecing it all together as as this, as you said, this moment, this fleeting moment in history where only these things could happen at the right amount and right time uh, for, for this bizarre, you know, smuggling of bone music. Yeah. So uh, it was like this. It was just a really fascinating thing to me, the amount of the, the amount of energy and time and, and things that people would do to get the music. Like nowadays, like we, we all grew up in an age of giving people mixtapes and things like that. Um, myself, I've moved on to giving people thumb drives here and there every mm -hmm. once in a while. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I was growing up, like you went out and bought a cassette tape or a, a record and you worked a paper out or you did what you had to do to get the money to buy that record to get that music. Because nowadays, like me and you are of an older generation, the younger generation, music is a commodity. You want something, you go out and download it or you go on Spotify and you listen to it or music isn't a real hard thing to get anymore. You can... You can find it anywhere. But when we were kids, we didn't have bit torrenting or something like that. So like we had to like I had to listen to um, there was a, um, a show that would come out of Canada called Brave New Waves. And I yes, used to listen yes. to that like super early in the morning. And I, that would be where I would get my new music fixed. And it came out of Canada, you know, and then 89X became the alternative radio station. I remember way back and it was still part alternative and part regular. And then it eventually switched over. But it, music was harder for us to find for the kind of stuff that we were into. And I was like really into a lot of really strange music at the time. I was into industrial bands like Skinny Puppy and and all like Front 242 and all these bands. So it was a lot harder for me to get. But going back to my point, you you go out, get a paper out, get whatever you could to get this money, go to the record store, you'd buy it. And even if you didn't like it, you would keep listening to it until you forced yourself to like it or whatever because you spent money and time to get that music to listen to it. So... Well, it's not just that. I mean, there's so many like slight variations of things you would get, like the concept of uh, like the Japanese release of something, right? Mm -hmm. Where where the sound wasn't quite the same, or uh, there is a concept of uh, you know the the LP versus the EP. Yeah, where, and like, bootlegs. And, and bootlegs, right? Yeah, like, all, the, all these variations on the same uh, medium and art form that don't really exist anymore. There was these record stores that. There was one in Royal Oak and there was another one, I think it was called Rock of Ages, where I remember working in the one in Royal Oak, Michigan, and there would be this wall of cassette tapes that were like different fluorescent colors. And they were all bootleg concerts and things like that. Yep. And you'd be like, oh, my God, you know, this this is a concert from blah, blah, blah. And they played such and such song or they did this cover or something like that. 
you know, and you really had to dig to get this kind of stuff. So I can appreciate the, the, the mentality and the idea behind going and trying to find this music. And it's funny because people didn't, well, we'll, we'll get to that. They didn't entirely know what they were buying. Sometimes they would just come up and buy the record and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that would be it, et cetera. So anyways, we're going to go into that. Hopefully this goes off without a hitch. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I guess we'll just jump into it. And as always, we will see everybody at the other side. So, hey. returning back for a second time is Stephen Coates. It is it is Coates, right? Am I pronouncing the last name properly? It is indeed. It's Stephen Coates. That's it, yeah. You play in a band called The Real Tuesday Wells, and you tour the world, and you got into this thing called X-Ray Audio. And I believe we were talking last time, and you said you were out on tour in the Soviet Union, which is no longer the Soviet Union, it's now Russia. And you went into a resale shop, and you found this record that was printed on a X-Ray film of was it jazz or what was it that you found well pretty so yeah so that's that's pretty much the story i i've been I've performed in russia many times and i was in st petersburg leningrad as it was that's quite important in this story actually um and we went sort of you know tourist we it's actually in a flea market um so and, and that's a we should talk about that later because the flea markets in russia and soviet unions were a great source of underground stuff full stop black market stuff music especially, but also other things, you know, clothes and all sorts of other stuff. But um, it wasn't the Soviet Union then when I was there, but actually on a particular stall, I saw a strange looking record. And I'm like you guys, I'm a, you know, a bit of a geek and a collector. And um, so I was just asking, I was actually asking my Russian buddies what it was and they didn't know what it was. Uh, so we, I was talking, trying to talk to the guy whose stall it was and he wasn't just wasn't particularly interested in it he was much more interested in hey you know buy this soviet army cap or whatever but i insisted i sort of bought it, it was very cheap uh, and i brought it back to london and uh, tried to play it 78 rpm single-sided like a flexi disc right you know from the sort of punk era but um obviously the most striking thing about it was that if you held it up to the daylight up to a window, you saw these two skeletal hands on it. It was a record that had been made on an X-ray. So that's how it all began for me, and it was a bit, and it was a, one of those moments, you know, like a kind of, like an epiphany, I suppose. It was like, okay, I've got to find out who made this record. It was Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley, 1957. Um, so I, I knew 78 RPM must have been recorded back in the day. So I just thought, who made it? Why did they make it? And how did they make it? And really, this project, the X-Ray Audio project, which has been rolling since then, is still, you know, answering those three questions. Well, let's start from the beginning. Tell us, set the stage for what the Soviet Union was like and where all this began. It was communist-controlled Russia. Uh, everybody was, you know, you, you couldn't do anything without the, the government's approval, etc. So let's start there and take us back to what things were like musically and culturally. Right. Well, I mean, it's a it's a tragic story, really. You know, obviously, revolutions in um, you know 
understandable revolutions in uh, Russia becomes the Soviet Union in 1917, 1918. And actually things changed in terms of music and stuff. Things were very exciting at the beginning because, you know, this revolution was powered by young people. And, um, you know, they're all asking each other, well, you know, what's the, what's the new art? What's the new music for this new society? And so it was a, quite an experimental time. I'm sure you guys are familiar with, for instance, the theremin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the theremin was invented by a Soviet, you know, Lev Termin, right? He, and, and by the way, there were lots of other uh, electronic devices and instruments invented in the 20s in the Soviet. You know, in some ways, they were quite ahead of us in terms of avant-garde stuff. But what happened is, is that very quickly, as Stalin took over, he was, a, you know, he was a peasant, basically, and culturally kind of stifled. Uh, and he took a, a more and more iron control over what culture was deemed to be in the service of this new, new communist reality. So as the sort of decade wore on, the 20s become the 30s, it became more and more repressive, not just for music, but for all kinds of culture. You know, he got to the point where basically anything cultural, you know, uh, whether it be theatre, film, literature, poetry, architecture, you know, graphic design, it was all subject to a censor. And the censor would decide whether it was, you know, acceptable or not. And if it wasn't acceptable, frankly, it was just became forbidden. So that happened really all the way through till the Second World War. But then the strange thing happened in the Second World War, which is that, you know, we, the, the Americans and the British and the Soviets were on the same team against the Germans. So for a while in Soviet Moscow and in Leningrad, you could watch American films in the cinemas. There was American, you know, you could get, listen to American music on the radio, jazz, you know. Um, and it was, it was quite a liberal time. So obviously the young people got infected by that. You know, they, 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 they loved it. But then as soon as the Second World War ended, you know, Churchill's big speech in 1948, Iron Curtain comes down. And basically in Stalin, you know, completely turned the clock back. So jazz became completely forbidden. Western culture became completely forbidden. And so you had this kind of situation where people have been given a, given a taste of it and they've loved it. And then suddenly they're told they can't have it. And on top of that, you've also got a huge amount of, uh, you know, we talked about it last time, a huge amount of Russian music that's being forbidden for various strange ideological reasons. Um, and so what happens is, is that there's so much pressure from ordinary people like you and I to listen to the music that they want, that a, a community of underground bootleggers, you know, devised a means that they could make their own records and distribute and sell them. And that, for reasons we can talk about, happens to be by making records, copying forbidden music onto X-ray film. So... Just two quick questions, my gentleman. So, if I were to turn on state-controlled radio uh, post post-war, what would I hear right. as a, as average Russian? So you would or Soviet hear, citizen. Yeah. So, of course, there's only really one radio station, or you know, one radio uh, broadcaster, really. So, if in terms of popular music, the stuff that Stalin and Co. liked, well, they loved what they call mass choirs, which is kind of you know choirs of like young Soviets singing these kind of worthy songs about, you know, the, the struggle of the working classes and, you know, the great move forward and about industry and factories and stuff like that. So very unsexy, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, like big choirs, mass choirs. 
they, he liked comic songs as well. So songs from the movies, kind of like, kind of musical songs, but sort of sentimental stuff. Of course, let's not forget there was amazing, wonderful uh, Russian Soviet classical music. So the classical music was, you know, high end, brilliant stuff, Rachmaninoff and all that stuff. But in terms of popular music, it seemed to be that, you know, these really worthy uh, songs of, you know, young pioneer songs, songs about being healthy and striving hard and stuff, or these kind of rather cheesy, sentimental um, uh, comic songs. And then when it went to, it really, it was really like that sort of very ersatz stuff, yeah. Okay. And then what you mean, perfect sense. So it was like this black spot, like pre-war, part of during the war, then post-war black spot again of, of Western culture infecting like the new Soviet man and woman, which makes sense because when, when I read all the pre-reading and, and listened to the documentary and stuff, you, like I was struck by how much jazz was uh, on those first records. But that makes sense because I was like, well, that seems out of step and out of era. But if that's what, you know, as you said, was infected the the young people uh, during war and post-war, the, the infinity there would be for jazz music. Is, is that what the first wave in the bootleg stuff was? Was it the old jazz standards and, and then went from there? Because I was amazed at how much, just how wild the Soviets were for jazz. Right. So the, the, answer, the answer question is yes, broadly. There had been, you know, there have been times in the 30s when jazz was okay, mm-hmm. you know, and acceptable. It's very strange. The sort of history of jazz in the Soviet Union is kind of painful and weird. Sometimes it's in fashion or sometimes it's allowed or tolerated. Other times musicians are literally pulled from stages. Some of them are shot. Some of them are sent to uh, gulags for re-education, you know, where they're not allowed to play. You know, there's all these stories about saxophones being confiscated and straightened out. You know, uh, so uh, it kind of came and went, but then they finally decided, you know, a post-war, it was out, it was not allowed. Now, that obviously for young people makes things more attractive, particularly when you've had a taste of it. And then, of course, we, the British and particularly the Americans, are actively broadcasting into the Soviet Union via shortwave radio. And, you know, and we're, of course, you know, we're, we're trying to affect their young people. So we're broadcasting in jazz programs and stuff. Right. But actually, the second part of your, 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 your question, which is, was the first stuff on these X-ray records jazz? Partly. But it was okay. also Russian music, because, as I said, huge amounts of Russian music is getting forbidden. Now, a couple of examples would be, <clears throat> before the war, there were huge stars like Pyotr Lyshenko. I mean, massive, you know, like almost a, a somebody of the, of the stature of Sinatra or something like that, right? Then, But he's an emigre. He lives in the West or he lives in, in, in Bucharest. You know, he doesn't come back to the Soviet Union. He's regarded as a, as a traitor, basically. So his... His repertoire becomes forbidden. Also, he performed in this kind of what they call Russian tango, which is not jazz. It's like this kind of rather passionate, wild gypsy style. And they didn't like that style. They, they, they felt it was like unhelpful for young people. It encouraged the wrong kind of passions, you know. So Lyshenko and the emigre singers became forbidden. So quite early on, what you start to see is these, these bootlegs they've got his music on them and you know because people loved him you know and uh, the ordinary russians just loved him i mean not talking about young hipsters now like rock, jazz and rock and roll it's like you know your mum my mum you know your older brother it's you know he was he was a he was a well-loved singer mm. and so you get both really from the start you get western music and russian music 
So how would this stuff get into the country if it's so incredibly controlled? How would these how how would these you know the original records get in there for these people to record this stuff? Right. So you've got a few ways. First of all, obviously, some there was records were already in, like the Americans, um, you know, were, you know, were giving the Russians records during the war. Russian soldiers brought a lot of American records back from Germany where they were given them by American soldiers, you know, so jazz records, you know, and, uh, swingy type stuff, you know, Glenn, Glenn, uh, Glenn Miller kind of type stuff. Mm -hmm. They brought that back. So those records were around. There were records which were around from before the war when things were a bit easier. Um, but then you get records smuggled in and they're smuggled in in various ways. And the, one of the reasons that this X-ray underground began in Leningrad rather than Moscow is that Leningrad's a port. It's actually near Finland. It's, it's in the west of Russia. So you've got sailors coming and going. And of course, you, you know, because Russia, you know, the Soviet Union was trading with, uh, with particularly with the Baltic countries. So, so the, those sailors, you know, would buy um, Western or forbidden Russian records because they know when they bring them back, they can sell them for a, for a lot of rubles. So that was, that was another way. Then, of course, if you are the son or the daughter of a high-level diplomat or an apparatchnik, you know, your, your father's an industrialist. In other words, you're one of the kind of, as they call them, they call them the, Soviet Union, the golden youth, the posh kids. Well, they had access, of course, they had access to Western stuff, Western clothes, Western food, and Western records. So they, they would get hold of stuff. And it sounds nuts, right? But people would, if you had, like, say... You know, a, a, some a, a collection of forty-fives. You know, of jazz sides. People would rent them out. They would rent them to, to bootleggers. So you could, you know, you can borrow my record collection for an afternoon. Um, you know, for a certain price. You know, so the different ways in, and then of course the other ways that we, as I said, we're we're broadcasting actively broadcasting um, jazz into the Soviet Union. So they would they would record things off the radio. But they were also. Russia was also doing things to counter those broadcasts. They would broadcast their own signals to kind of like try to marble, garble out or static the other broadcast that was coming through. So you have this war in the airwaves of conflicting signals going back and forth over music. It's like a music war going on <laughs> around anybody and nobody knew. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I like exactly. I like to call it like the, the invisible battle of the Cold War airwaves. You know, it's like nobody, nobody really talks so much about this, but it's, you can almost imagine that there's this invisible rays, you know, pushing from from the, from America or from you know broadcasting from West Berlin, you know, yeah. uh, so pushing into the Soviet Union, and there's this kind of crackling wave of static pushing back, and the, you know, um, and that was literally like what it was what it was like. The, the Russians, the Soviets, um, I, I did a little bit of research on this last year. They spent an unbelievably large amount of money on building a ring of towers around Moscow. That's the sole purpose of was was to block was to send, emit a gigantic electronic buzz to block Western radio. And here we are wishing about 5G. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. But you, so you, you, I think you'd like this, Roger, because, um, you know, if you heard these, um, I know you're a fan of avant-garde strange sounds. You probably love their, uh, their, their jamming signals, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm also about the whole uh, number stations and stuff like that. I'm, I'm really into right. stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was told uh, it sounds a little ridiculous, but I saw these towers that they built. They they demand they took they took up so much power that they had to have their own power station, and they built a reservoir in Moscow to cool them down. Wow. Um, and of wow. course, 
of course, the um, the, the the Americans, uh, you know, you guys, infinite budget at that time anyway. So you just you're just building bigger and bigger transmitters. So it was this kind of it's a bit like the nuclear nuclear arms race, but you know, into an electronic music. signal. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so what, what happened was is that, and of course, again, again Len, Moscow, you can do that, right? You can probably block the signal completely. Leningrad is, is quite far from Moscow. It's by, it's by uh, Western Europe. So much more difficult to consistently jam the signal there. And then also, even with all that technology, apparently, I mean, I'm not an engineer, but I, apparently, even with all that technology, it, if the weather changes, the, pre, you know, the air pressure changes, then you know, the signal would get through sometimes. So it was a bit hit and miss, but, you know, and um, I met one bootlegger, this old guy in, in Russia, and he would take his gear to the top of a hill, you know, where he knew there's one place where he could take his gear to where he could get a signal, you know. Huh. So people could get around the jamming even then. So let's get to the meat or the bones of this, to, for a pun intended. Yep. Okay, where do we start with the bootlegging? Who were the people... Well, first, let's start with why Why were these things bootlegged onto X-ray films? How did they get them? And why X-ray films, of all things? Right, so I think what, I, from what I've, in the Soviet Union at least, what seems to have come first is the, the actual recording machine. And you and I talked about this last time. So they use these things which we call recording lathes. And that's like a gramophone in reverse. So, you know, you've got a turntable, you've got something which looks like a needle, but in fact, it's a cutting head. So rather than with a record player where the needle, the cartridge is riding the groove of the vinyl record and, you know, translating that into sound, uh, the, 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 the arm and, and the cutting head, it's cutting a groove into a blank disc. Now, that technology we, was invented in the West you know, you've got it in those voice, voice-to-graph booth things, you know, particularly in the States, you know, where you could go in and make a souvenir recording of your voice. And, uh, uh, you know, that was a commercial thing in the West. But also they were used by um, – in B B the BBC used those things. Journalists used them. They would travel around Europe um, making reports from various places with these machines. They're pretty heavy, but they're just about transportable. I mean, we use one now to – to, to do demonstrations with and what seems to have happened is that we've definitely tracked one particular guy who uh, got hold of one of these in Berlin or uh, during the war he looted it it was like a war trophy brought it back to Leningrad and he he installed it in a business the business was I think was like a photographic studio the sort of place where you can go and have like a headshot done um, but he put this in the corner and they started advertising to people. I've seen the ads actually funny saying, you know, you can come down and you can record your voice or you can bring your kid down and, you know, on their birthday and make a souvenir recording and sing a song. And so they, they started to do that. And this is what we know about him is that his business started to do really well. And it wasn't because of the photographs he was taking. It wasn't because of the souvenir voice recordings that he was making. It was because in the, in the evening, he was using this very same machine to copy forbidden records. And so effectively, he'd become one of the first bootleggers. There, there may have been other people doing it at the same time, but we definitely know about him. That's 1946 in Leningrad. And we also know that... Um, that quickly started to spread. A little community of music lovers started to gather around him and his shop. You know, because obviously he was, he, 
he was producing the stuff that people wanted to listen to. And at least one of those people, Ruslan Bogoslovsky, this young dude, you know, was very technically uh, skilled himself as an engineer, as well as being a music lover and being quite entrepreneurial. And he managed to copy the machine. So he, he did it, he sort of bootlegged the bootlegging machine and built his own version of it, managed to build his own version of it. Huh. And that's really how it started to generate, because he built more machines for the people. At first, it, what's quite strange is that at first, they, for, for blank media, they seem to have been using the films that the military used to make maps for the Air Force, like big plastic maps that you would actually have with you in a plane. Heaven knows where they were getting them from. Also, I imagine that's a very dangerous thing to cut a record on because if the authorities find you messing around with military maps, you're probably going to get in deep shit. So quite, <laughs> qu quite quickly, um, maybe, I mean, maybe because it's dangerous, maybe because <clears throat> they were running out of them, or maybe just because somebody found out that it was much easier to use X-ray film. And so X-ray film, you know, it's like, <clears throat> it's literally photographic film. It's It's this kind of, plastic kind of, you know, sort of plastic um, sheets, you know, like, uh, like photographic film is. And it just so happens that that surface, uh, you can cut it into circles, you can, it's soft enough to, to take the groove, you know, which you write with a recording lathe, and sort of strong enough to hold that groove so that you can play it back like a conventional record. Um, so that's really why they used it, you know, and um, and because it was very easy to get hold of. You got you had a situation in um, Soviet Union where the kind of X-rays that they were using at the beginning, they can spontaneously combust, right? They're, they're flammable, right? I mean, we know this about that early, like early, even early cinema film, right? If it decays a bit, it can explode. So there've been a couple of big fires in Soviet hospitals. So they've been issued with, um, you know, an order that they had to get rid of all their x-rays, uh, you know, and um, for the people who work in the hospital, that was just a, an annoying thing to have to do because everybody was being x-rayed for TB and all sorts of stuff at the time. So there was this marriage, you know, married made in heaven or hell, whichever way you want to look at it, which was that the people who worked in the hospitals uh, could, you know, at night go to the back door with a big stack of uh, x-rays and the bootleggers would turn up and there'd be a little trade down, you know, for some rubles, a few bottles of vodka. And, you know, Bob's your uncle, as would say here, the bootleggers could go back to their secret workshops with a whole stack of blank recording media. This whole thing is so punk rock. Like, this yeah, is totally. punk rock before punk rock, you know? Jazz, yeah. jazz was punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> totally punk. You're absolutely right, man, because you know what? The best way to think of these guys who were doing it, they were like punks. They were the punks of their day. They were young. They were like up for it. They were, and they weren't political, right? Political. Um, uh, they weren't particularly political, but they were definitely anti-establishment in the way that punks were. You know, they were they were like fuck you to the to the um, authorities. We love this music. We want to do it ourselves. Just in the way that you know that whole DIY movement of, of punk. Just I think that's the best parallel i think yeah the parallel makes because when you kept saying bootleggers uh, when i did the research on the bootleggers i i just kept assuming like organized crime and right. the more more you explain it i'm like no it, it is well maybe it's not is it primarily music lovers technicians um and engineers who are like the first wave here who, who have the, I, I, the technical skill to do this or is it just people like 
learning as they go, as you said, like to figure out, hey, we can get access to these x-rays, but let's run with these. Well, de definitely at the beginning, <clears throat> uh, they, were, they were music lovers and quite tech, some of them at least were kind of technically savvy, not all of them, because of course mm -hmm. you need, you only need a couple of people to actually build the machines and operate them. And then you need other people to, you know, find the music to copy, to sell the records, etc. Um, so there was definitely, and all the way through, there was definitely a current of people who were music lovers. Um, but as time went on and the market for these records grew and it started obviously to spread from Leningrad to Moscow and to Rostov, to Kiev, to Sochi, to other parts of the Soviet Union, um, then of course the black, black, well, you know, black marketeers became interested. Like, you know, not really, I, I always call it, it's like disorganized crime. You know, gotcha. they, um, they, they it, particularly in particularly in Soviet Union, there, there wasn't a kind of equivalent of the mafia, but there were sort of bot, you know, big bigger fish in that world. They, they got interested in it because, um, like anything, you know, there's money to be made. They'll, you know, they'll sell records, they'll sell raincoats, they'll sell cigarettes, they'll, you know, whatever it is. So as time went on, you got more unscrupulous people involved in it. But there were always people who did it because they love music. What the guy I mentioned earlier, one of the bootleggers that I have interviewed, he was doing it later in the fifties, and he was a massive jazz fan. I mean, he did it because he could make money. He knew how to do it. It was cool, dangerous, but cool. And um, he was anti-establishment himself, and he was a massive jazz fan, and and he enjoyed introducing punters to you know new sounds so in, right. a, in some ways he became a bit like a kind of i don't know what you call it's not curator sounds a bit pompous but you know like um well listen you guys you he love music but you know you know that pleasure of ringing up your buddy or going to see somebody and saying you've got to listen to this man this right is yeah we okay. were talking about yeah. that before we recorded here about how back in the day we used to give each other mixtapes and stuff like that and, and right. now i still give people like i'll give the people thumb drives here and every once in a while like here listen to this here's some new music you know hope you like it right so he 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 was like that he he, he enjoyed because people obviously would come you know particularly particularly as time went by and more and more people knew about this and more more and more if you like you know not music aficionados, just ordinary punters knew about it and wanted to get some stuff. Of course, they would come along and they would ask for the obvious things, the obvious Russian songs or Rock Around the Clock or, you know, stuff that they'd kind of already heard of. And he, would, he could sell them that, but he'd be like, well, yeah, listen, but why don't you try this? You know, why don't you buy this uh, as well? You know, and he would he would try and introduce them to, to cooler stuff, you know, with mixed results. But yeah. I have two questions uh, just because you said other people come around, but the first one is distribution. And you mentioned Philly markets early on. Was that like, even then in the fifties, was that the method of, of distribution? Was it flea markets? I mean, how would, if I did, if I was in the know and I wanted one of these records, where would I go to get one? Right. So I don't know what it's like where you guys are, but I'm, and I'm not we sure. We live in Detroit. I was going to, the parallel I'm going to use with, I'm going to, without any assumptions is, is that if you want to, it's a bit like buying soft drugs. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what the, what the deal, what the score is, as it were in, in Detroit, but I mean, you know, we in, live in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you, at the, particularly at the beginning, if you, uh, it would often be done by, I know this guy, he knows a guy, you know, mm, and if okay. we go into, if we go into his place, we can get something. Um, if you didn't know a guy and he was a guy, there were places that you could go on the streets. So particular street corners, particular courtyards, 
um, you know, um, particular alleyways, you know, you could sort of try to go and try your luck. Obviously, it was a bit like with soft drugs, it's a bit more risky, it's a bit more unpredictable what you're going to get. They did sell them in the flea markets, but the only thing is that obviously the flea, the, the authorities, you know, would patrol the flea markets. So mm-hmm. it was a bit more risky, but um, they did sell them there too. But I think it mainly seems to be done either by personal contact, particularly in the early days, or then, you know, certain places that you would go knowing you know that there's going to be somebody there and of course with Mikhail the, the guy that I knew he he made really good records and he had good taste so people would come back repeat customers you know so how would you discern like if one of your customers was not MGB or KGB who's coming to who also heard from a guy who heard from a guy maybe in a gulag who spilled the beans on I mean how much interest was there in shutting this stuff down Right. So right from right early on, um, the authorities obviously got wind of it and they didn't like it at all. So in 1949, late 1949 in Leningrad, there was a big uh, sweep and they picked up the guys that I mentioned earlier and um, anybody who was involved in the scene. So that mean the people who were actually making the records, cutting the records themselves, the people who were (coughs) selling them. Um, and they, you know, they confiscated all the gear, and they, I think, there was about fifty people uh, at that time were all arrested. And the two guys, well, the Bogoslovsky, the guy I mentioned earlier, and uh, his his buddies, they, and they'd formed this um, underground record label, basically called the Golden Dog Gang, um, and you know they had their own labels and stuff. And uh, there was a court case; they were they were sentenced to five years each. Um, so they went to prison um, and would have probably, well, who knows what, what would have happened, actually. But um, fortunately for them, Stalin died and there was this huge amnesty of non-political prisoners so that they, they sort of got early release and just basically okay. went straight back to doing, carrying on doing it. But the authorities kept, were always trying to shut it down. Um, they they sort of in the, they they would do arrests obviously and, and they waged a propaganda war in the newspapers and and, and, and film film reel uh, newsreels film newsreels um, and um, yeah so you were always running a risk I guess if you were selling on a street corner Mikhail told me uh, Frafinov he said that he could always tell when it was a KGB guy you know or a secret policeman it, and and he was very sort of dismissive of them you know gotcha. he, he reckons he could always tell but i'm but 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 he probably couldn't actually and and, and people did get arrested and um you know like like drug dealers get arrested and uh, i was you know. gonna say the parallels between this and and drug deals are so striking like, like you right. mentioned earlier you had a guy that made really good quality records and then you had people right. that made cheap quality records it's kind of again like drugs this is a guy that sells really good drugs this is a guy that cuts stuff that's not that good and it was right. shadowy and if you wanted to buy these, you had to find like some guy in a back alley with a trench coat because they would have like 25 of these records rolled up in each sleeve. And right. you didn't know what you were buying sometimes. And again, now you've yeah. got under, it's like, are you a cop? If you're a cop, you got to tell me you're a cop, right? You know, that, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. you know, yeah, well, I was yeah. going to ask in terms of quality control, like, how did you know what you were getting? Was it just like grab bag or maybe this is what this could be? Cause a guy gave it to me from a guy and he said, it's this and I haven't played it yet. So here you go. I mean, right. was, well, okay. Well, I mean, that's Exactly. So if you knew somebody like Mikael, the guy I mentioned, you, it was fine because you could trust him. 
You could trust the quality of what he produced. His, his records were good. And you could also trust that if he said it was Rock Around the Clock or a Russian song, it was what he said it was, right? He, you know, he, he was honest. But obviously a lot of, particularly later on, a lot of them weren't honest. They would try and pass off, um, you know, very poorly recorded records. They often, sometimes they, they so if you went, you know, turned up, you've heard about this song, um, Tutti Frutti, by the Richard, you've not heard it, but you've you've heard about it, and it's supposed to be amazing. So oh. you go up to the you go up to the bootleg and say like, and he says, "What do you want?" And you say, uh, "Tutti frutti." Now, if he's got it, he'll sell it you, right? But if he hadn't got it, quite often this is what I was told. They'd say, "Yeah, no problem, man. Go around the corner, get his pen out, write Tutti frutti on any old record, <laughs> and then come back and give you that, right?" Now, um, so, but of course, if you're a young kid who's heard about Tutti Frutti but never heard it, then you take it home and play it and you think, and, and if, as long as it was, a, I assume anyway, as long as it was an actual Western record, you might think, spend the rest of your life thinking that was Tutti Frutti, you know. Right. Um, now, <clears throat> sometimes it worked out <clears throat> rather well because the another person who we interviewed for the project, who's sadly now dead, um, he went to buy a, a record and was given one and when he got it home he put it on and it was a Beatles record and it changed his life I mean and that's no exaggeration and uh, that was a sort of very happy accident for him you know that this particular record had, had a sort of revolutionary effect on his mind you know and I mean that was kind of happy chance you know so you're never quite sure usually no, you can never, it could work out well. Sometimes it could work out badly. Others, the quality varied massively. I mean, from unlistenable to I've got some records now that you put them on and they sound hot. I mean, unbelievably brilliantly recorded, you know. So I'm assuming that when people bought these, they would have like listening parties and things like that, like underground, like, hey, what are we doing Friday night? Let's go over to Yuri's house and, and listen to the Beatles, which is probably you know, jazz or something, you don't know exactly what the hell you're listening to. You just don't care because you want to hear new music. Exactly. You think about, right, you know, when you guys were teenagers, right, and thinking, you know, that excitement of going around to your mate's place or going to a party, you know, where you in and, you know, listening to the music that you love, right? You know that feeling, okay? Imagine that. Yeah, we call those raves now. <laughs> right. like going to a rave. That's that's a really good. That's a really good parallel. So I mean, you know, in this country, you know, secret underground, you know, garage parties and underground raves out in the countryside. It's like that. Uh, obviously, obviously, small, smaller scale. Very exciting. It's got the additional uh, uh, um, free song of risk about it because you know you might get busted by the KGB or whatever. And, you know, you're going to go into a party with your buddies and uh, uh, you're going to put some jazz and then rock and roll on, dance to it, you know, if you can, and uh, and um, and dress if you've got any kind of Western-style clothes. It must have been extremely exciting for those people at the time, you know, to do that. And they did have these secret parties in empty apartments and stuff, but, you know, the risks were, the risks were higher, you know. You didn't just have... In the Soviet Union... Um, the, the big issue really was that you had the secret, you had the KGB and then the kind of military police. But what was more risky for these people was what's called the Komsomolsk. That was voluntary youth police. So it's like straight out of 1984, you had bands of, of young pioneer type Soviets dressed in this kind of like grey outfits who basically went around in patrols. They people who you know young kids who were dressing Western they would 
They would cut their clothes. They would forcibly cut their hair. You know, they would, uh, um, you know, they would try and track down these secret parties and bust them up. You know, this is like other people, people your own age, you know, like mm-hmm. they were like militaristic, militaristic, ideologically crazed scouts. Mm. Does, that fit, does that fill you with fear? Me and Patrick are talking between, before the show. The, the idea of getting arrested and put in jail for the type of music you listen to, it still blows my mind. Like when we were growing up, you, you could have a two live crew tape or something like that. Right. And you wouldn't get thrown in jail for 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 listening to two live crew or something. Yeah, you know? a, a cultural faux pas, but not yeah, yeah. not a, a chargeable offense. I mean, the worst right. we had here was the censorship laws where you had the parental warning labels put on records and things like that, right. which really backfired because it was like, oh, there's a the parental sales. warning on this. Yeah, I need to buy this record. There's cussing. Yeah, swearing right. on it. That just basically right. said this is the record you want to buy right here. You know, right. but the, the idea of you know, you're listening to this, this is illegal and not of the state, we have to confiscate everything and we have to put you in jail now, you know? I mean, the bootlegging, yeah, because we still have that here for, you know, you had that here for the longest time where if you make bootlegs, you get in trouble and you go to jail, et cetera. Right. You know, you have it with Napster and, and all the downloading torrents and things like that, which is something else that we talked about before, but I'm going to bring it up again. Like, in our culture, what we have now, especially with the younger generation, the music is kind of a commodity now. Like, if you want to hear something... You go on Spotify, you go on YouTube, right. you go anywhere you want and you listen to the music that you want. to. It's easy to get now. It's not a big deal. Right. Was when we were growing up, you had to paper out or you had to earn the money you get to go up to the record store to buy the music that you wanted to listen to. And if you were like me, you had to go to obscure, strange record stores because this wasn't something you'd go up to get at. Like You could go up to like Sam Goody and buy a Depeche Mode tape. But if you wanted to find something on Wax Tracks Records, like Front 242 or like a band called Einstein and the Neubach, and you really had to go out and find and look for that kind of stuff. It was it was a very right. different time. So even worse now, you take that to Soviet Russia. If you want to listen to the Beatles, you know, this is your only chance to find this kind of stuff is to buy these bootlegged records. And as you said earlier, you're not even entirely sure that's what you're getting. But again, right. you don't care. Right. You just want to hear new, new things. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. exactly. So, you you know, you, you we talked about that last time. And, and like, so, you, you know, you you were into a particular... Uh, uh, you know, particularly odd, you know, odd. I was weird. I still am. Your yeah. <laughs> music, right? So you've got, first of all, you've got to say, like, do the paper and, you know, you've got, you, you know, you've got to, like, work to save enough money to buy a record. And in your case, yeah. you've actually got to go travel to another city, maybe, or, tra- you know, to, to get it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what, what did that do? So, if, I, if you know, what did that do for you? I'm assuming that that meant that when you got your hands and you, on that uh, vinyl or, or tape or whatever it was, and then when you got your ears around it, I'm assuming that that meant a lot, right? Yeah, that you particular... appreciate it even more. Or even if it wasn't the kind of, like, you'd buy a Like, nowadays, you buy a record. If it's not what you like, you just toss it aside. But back then, if you went out and bought a record, if it's if it wasn't quite what you liked, you'd still keep listening to it because you liked the band until you did like it, you know? Right. So, or it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, the idea that, like, this is something you discovered that no one else in your circle knows about. Uh, and you're the you're the, you're the first to to discover this thing as some kind of uh, musical astronaut here, mm-hmm. and you're gonna right. spread it around. But which which uh, I'm stuck on the idea that there could be someone for 30 years uh, who thought they were listening to Tutti Frutti, <laughs> and it was like Glenn Miller or something. <laughs> and they had no idea this alternate reality until. Well, the, so, you know, I, I, this is that, that is quite interesting because of course we're uh, talking to an old, uh, talking to um, uh, an old guy who was at. Uh, he was a punter then, you know. He so he wasn't a bootleg himself, but he bought records then. So it was really useful to find out what it was like from 
you know, the, from the from the side of the person, the customer, you know. Uh, and what he told me was is quite interesting, is that because he listened to all this stuff on X-ray for um, for years, he said that, and then when eventually he got the official versions of those records, whatever, whether they were Russian or or uh, jazz or rock and roll records. He said that it didn't feel they didn't feel right somehow because it got used to listening to them oh, a certain way, you know, so through this fizzy wall of uh, of static and stuff. And then when you hear the kind of pristine version, it, it was like, oh, that sounds like a different song. But you know, just to go back to what you're saying about the <clears throat> the value of those, you know, the hard to obtain immediately becomes more valuable. So. For us, you know, that that the, the and and also this thing about the special thing that you've discovered as well that the, all those pleasures, uh, it's that multiplied by a hundred, isn't it? Because you um, you can only get a very few records for a start. Mm. You know, each one of these X-rays has only got one song on it. It also it wears out, right? So you know, if you play it repeatedly, it it starts to deteriorate and then die. And you're running a risk by buying it. Just to, just to correct something, you wouldn't be put in prison for listening to that music. So if you were for for, for making the records, absolutely, for dealing, probably. Um, if you were caught with those records, they would confiscate them. Your name will be taken down. I, I don't know, you know. So that that's like they do with kids with soft drugs here. You know, if you're a repeat offender, if you keep coming out maybe something's going to happen. But in the Soviet Union, if you got your name taken down, it could really just affect things like, well, maybe you wouldn't be able to go to university. Maybe you wouldn't be able to get a decent job. You know what I mean? So it wouldn't be that you'd necessarily go to... That go, blows go my to, mind. We can't hire you. You can see that you listen to Cab Calloway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you know, you're excluding, you can start excluding people. So um, absolutely, the value of a particular song, the value of a particular artist, and, you know, the value of a particular record was very high, I think. And we have, we have lost that. There's no doubt about that. I, you know, I, it's amazing, isn't it, to be able to put Spotify on and choose whatever you want. It's a wonderful thing. But of course, there's no doubt about it. We have lost certain pleasures in that bargain. The bargain of convenience and abundance has meant that we have lost you know, the, uh, uh, what you just said, you know, you, you bought a record, you listen to it for the first time, you think, mm, it's not that great. You think, hold on a minute, this cost me like a week's work and traveling yeah. to a different city. I'm going to give it a good other go. Two weeks later, it's your favorite record ever, right? Because, you know, you you gave it the time, you gave it the repeated plays. Who does that now? It's strange because since our last interview, which was a few weeks ago, I found myself going back and, and re-listening to a lot of bands that I, I used to like them. And then for whatever reason, I fell out of them. One of them is Underworld, if you ever heard of them. Yeah, yeah, of um, course, yeah. I was a yeah. big Underworld fan for many years, and then their music evolved, and I got out of it. So now I've been finding myself going back to all these bands that I got out of and listening to their later material and really bonding to it and going, wow, this was something that I missed that was really good. You know, maybe I should have stayed on a little bit longer or maybe I should have, okay, I didn't like that record. Maybe I should buy the next record after that one. Right, and I've done right. that with a lot of bands that it's, it's kind of like, it, it's the conversation we had for whatever re reason made me kind of retrograde and go back and listen to a lot of this old stuff that I had forgotten about or bands that yeah, I had moved yeah, right. on from. Right, right, right. And it's, that's part of who you are in that moment listening to that music probably won't grip you as, as if you were older or younger. Yeah. Uh, the life experiences. Yeah. It was just strange that I find since we've had our last conversation, how I've gone back to all of these old bands and stuff 
and kind of rediscovered. Maybe it's because what we were talking about, how music is so mm. disposable now and so crafted and, and, and just poppy and it's made to to sell records and stuff like that where it's lost well, some of the soul. I mean, as someone who deals with, you know, teenagers all the time, like it also exists in perpetuity. I mean, it exists on a stream on YouTube where it will be in a, a block of eight hours and mm-hmm. you won't even have who the artist is half the time. Right. Uh, so, you know, they're just absorbing all of it, not knowing what they're listening to, which is background sound, uh, mm-hmm. which I, I wonder if it robs some of the, the value of it, too. But I, th- I think that's that, that's that's got to be there, too. But I mean, you know, there's a big payoff to that, obviously, well, isn't it? Is that, you know, you, we have got this amazing access and I th- it's almost like we traded certain more subtle pleasures, I suppose. Mm. I think we were talking last time, uh, Rajan, you know, but the the other thing is that, you know, I, I certainly remember this is, you know, I like entire albums, you know, so yeah. because quite often the artist mm-hmm. has put a, quite a lot, I'm, 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 you know, I'm a musician myself, so I've done it myself, you put time into the programming of the tracks, <clears throat> the particular order of the tracks, etc. And it may be, you know, with with albums is that on first few plays, it's like track seven, it's like, mm, that's a bit boring. But, you know, if you, with repeated plays, it's suddenly, no, that's actually amazing. You know, and it, it's just that thing of taking time. And, of course, who's got the time now? You know, you, you just move on, right? I, it's funny you mentioned that today, but rediscovering old stuff, because today I actually put on it's exactly the same thing. And I put on um, uh, Laughing Stock and Spirit of Eden by this band Talk Talk. I don't know if you know them. They were oh, Talk Talk. Yeah. Talk Talk were like an electro pop band, and then they went super super hip and jazz experimental and then disappeared well their final two albums i mean which did nothing commercially i love them and it was just the same thing i thought i'm going to put i'm going to put them on today and they are definitely records that that do not get you the first time you know and i I was thinking today i don't it's difficult to imagine somebody making a record like that these these days on a major record on a on a major record label, because the major record label would be like, oh, come on, come on, where's the, you know, it's like, you can't have like, you can't start off a record with 15 minutes of amp hum. Yeah, <laughs> but, you're, you're not going to have, you're not going to have Dark Side of the Moon anymore, or yeah. you're, you're not going to have those big, long, epic records, because now it's like, well, th- w- there's only two hits on this record, we need to get as much money off of this record as we can, so we need to have as many hits as possible. Like you go back to the Beatles that would release two records a year, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or people, you know, and I, you know, as, a, as an artist who's been signed, I've been told myself, listen, if we, obviously we've got to have a single, but it's like, you've got to get to the chorus in 45 seconds, man. It's like yeah. people turn off. I've been told that people will turn off unless you've got to the chorus in 45 seconds. Well, I mean, this talk talk record, the first 15 seconds of the first track is amp, amp, um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway. we were talking before and you had said that, um, you know, you said you found all this stuff in flea markets and things like that. And then you started putting all of this together and you interviewed all these people and you found out about this. But you'd mentioned that most people that live in Russia, even today, don't know about this. They, there's this part of their history where it's kind of like a black area, as Patrick would say, a black area for them. You know, that's absolutely their history. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So what happened was is that I found this record. So then every time I went back to Russia to play... Um, I thought, you know, I've got to find out about stuff. So I started asking. There was a bit of stuff on the internet, but I was I was asking people about it, and I was just drawing a blank, you know. Like, I mean, as I said, my Russian friends didn't know anything about it, and then then I was really fortunate to meet one person um, who did know about it, and also mu- much more importantly and very kindly, he introduced me to this old guy in 
St. Petersburg, Leningrad as was, who was a bootlegger himself in the 50s and 60s. Um, and so actually that, and then we, we filmed and interviewed him and that opened up the door a bit to, to other people. Um, and there was no, people just generally didn't know about it. It wasn't, there was no re, re, a record of it, like written record of it or anything. Um, so we gathered most of the information from um, interviewing people. And the, and then, of course, there's some official records about, you know, there's some propaganda against these guys and stuff like that. So we just started to assemble it all, speak to various people and then put it together. And so then we published the X-ray audio book, which is the which is the first the first, you know, history of this stuff. Um, and then it turned into a traveling exhibition. And then we got invited to go and do it in Moscow at the Museum of Contemporary Art. By the by, this by the curator that who's English, right? Uh, and and, and the, the very the very first conversation I had with her, I went over there for a meeting with her, and um, because we, we'd we'd done the exhibition in London and various other places, you know, around the UK and stuff. And, and the very first conversation with her, I said, "Why do you want two English guys?" Because I, I work with my friend Paul. Why t- two English guys to have an exhibition in Moscow about Soviet musical history? And she said to me, "If you were two Russian guys." I wouldn't be talking to you. Oh, that's interesting. And and I said, well, that's a bit weird. <laughs> and she said, the thing is, is that they have got a blind spot about their own past. They don't look at their own past. It's uh, sadly, she was saying this. It often takes people outside Russia to bring something to their attention that's important. And I think what happened with the Soviet times, it was so painful for people that when it was over, they just wanted to forget it. And for older people who were around at the time of these records, it was bad, you know, that they were, they were often dark times. Um, and so, and obviously this record, this underground, this x-ray record culture, it died out in the early 60s. It was always quite a small thing. So not that many people, you know, really knew about it anyway. A lot of them are dead now, I suppose. And um, so when we did the exhibition in Moscow, there was loads of young people coming who were like astounded that they, this thing had gone on they didn't know anything about it you, you, okay the, the physical copies of it like then you said you found one in a flea market how prevalent would these things turn up now like like if you were just to go to a, a random flea market in uh, moscow or, or, or a suburb like what's the chance you'd stumble across one of these or they, anyone they, even they, know what they are they're pretty rare now, and then what's happened actually, which I suppose is inevitable, but because of our exhibition and because of mm. the project, is that they've now become collector's items. They weren't collector's items at all. I mean, the, just to give you an example, the one I bought, first of all, it cost me a pound, one pound. I don't know what's that, a dollar fifty or something. I could, probably, I could probably have got it for less if I bargained. <laughs> Um, you know, because it was regarded as trash, they just weren't interested in it. And of course, now there is this kind of collector's market in it. So the the first of all, two things is that the the ones the original ones go for quite a lot of money. Second thing is, is there is now, unbelievably, but of course not that unbelievable, knowing the Russians, there's now a bootleg market in them. So people my friend are, bought one last week. People, people <laughs> are making fake ones. So, yeah, my um, friend bought a Doors one last week. <laughs> if, if it's a Doors one, I can say ninety five percent is a yeah. fake one. That's one of the things I want to ask you real quick. Sorry, Pat, I got I to gotta ask before I cut you off. But the, we talked about this before. When somebody would go buy one of these records in a yeah. back alley or what have you, 
um, I made reference earlier about getting a paper out and getting money to go buy these records. How much would a person pay for them? And what would that be the equivalent of in, say, American dollars or whatever euros or whatever system you guys are using these days? How much yeah, would the equivalent right. be? So, so they were cheap. They were cheap. So um, it's difficult to put to sort of compare. So like the and there was a revaluation of the ruble, but they were like one, two rubles. So I say cheap, but um, I think we had this conversation before. Isn't it? So the guy, yeah. uh, the guy I told with the Beatles guy, he what he did is is that his mum would give him some money every day for his uh, school lunch. He wouldn't have lunch. He would save it all up, and at the end of the week, he had enough money to buy a record. And I extra- do that now when I'm married. so um i don't know what that comes to five five uh, five kids lunches in a russian soviet school in the 50s what that adds up to so so you can imagine no it it was they were much much cheaper than like trying to buy a bona fide smuggled western 45 or you know would have been very expensive you know for, for for them like a, I think, I think I was told that the first time you could get a Beatles album, smuggled Beatles albums, it was like a month's wages or something like that, an official one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were much cheaper than that, but they were probably a bit, they were probably more expensive than buying a standard record in a record store. But then they contained cool music, so people were happy to pay that for them, you know. So fifteen dollars, twenty dollars. Less, for... I would imagine less. Actually, they, they would because obviously people then really didn't own very much. So I guess they'd be like five bucks or something. But obviously that would be quite a lot of money then. You know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah. So you said the the market ended in the what did you say early sixties was yeah it, it died was, out. Yeah. What killed what killed it? So what killed it was um, well America really killed it in a strange way because. Um, <laughs> Stalin dies. Khrushchev comes to power and re, re, you know rejects a lot of the excesses of, the, of Stalin's time. Things start to open up a, a bit. This is late fifties, early sixties. Then Khrushchev comes to America. There's this famous trip, and he witnesses you know all the goodies that you guys have got: refrigerators, TVs, you know, vacuum cleaners, the whole thing, right? You know, consumer goods. And famously, he came, comes back to the Soviet Union and says, "If it's good enough for American citizens, it's good enough for Soviet citizens." So. A part of this kind of general opening up is that there was a lot more consumer items, you know, just consumer desirables became available to uh, Soviet citizens. And one of them was the reel-to-reel tape recorder. Now, they existed for sure in the Soviet Union, but they were very expensive and difficult to find, difficult to get. So then suddenly, they, you know, you could buy them. So they made, started making their own, you know, con- consumer ones. Now, I'm still, I still do not understand this. Right. Nobody's ever given me a satisfactory explanation. They've spent a huge amount of time, energy and money in prosecuting these bootleggers, X-ray bootleggers. And then they suddenly said to ordinary Soviet citizens, yeah, you can have a reel-to-reel tape recorder, as though they were going to spend their time recording speeches by Soviet leaders or boring Soviet pop music. Oh, that's interesting. No, of course they didn't do that. They immediately immediately started bootlegging. You know, uh, music that they wanted to listen to. So the 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 amount of bootlegging, the the era of bootlegging, massively took off in the sixties. But on magnetic tape, because you can do it at home yourself. Right. You can get twenty minutes. You know, uh, at that time of high quality sound, rather than three and a half minutes of fizzy static, and you don't have to go on the street and buy it off some dodgy geezer. 
Um, so in terms of like the bootleg culture, mushroomed. But in terms of x-ray culture, it, it died out. It carried on in a few places, uh, obscure places. And, and a few people carried on doing it maybe because they just enjoyed it or because they even then couldn't afford or get hold of a reel-to-reel. But generally speaking, around about 63, 64, 65, it just disappeared. That reminds me when I was a kid, um, we used to have this radio station that broadcast out of Canada. And there was a show called Brave New Waves. I don't know if I brought this up at the beginning of the show or not before you jumped on. But again, not being able to find the music that I wanted or being able to find a place, being 14, 15 years old, I couldn't yeah. exactly go to the clubs. So there was these shows that would come on really late at night. And I remember going out and buying these 120-minute chrome cassette tapes right. and just recording hours and hours and hours of radio shows right. to to hear these songs and then write down, okay, what that's a song, who's this by? And then I would be able to go out and try to find it. And sometimes I couldn't find it. So the only way I could listen to the music would be to go back and listen to these radio shows over and over again that I recorded right. on a cassette tape. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you got you got this strange kind of uh, compilation, accidental compilation of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that, my, my, oldest, my oldest sister used to, um, I can still remember this when I was little, my oldest sister used to uh, record uh, like the, we have this thing called the chart show in, in the UK, you know, the sort of top 20 or whatever, you know, of the top most popular songs of the day. And she'd record it every Sunday. She would make a cassette of the top 20, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, obviously you wouldn't like all of them, but or she wouldn't like all of them, but, the but you know, in there, there'd be a sort of two or three gems or something, you know what I mean? And, I remember, yeah. like, also, the recording industry made a huge deal about cassette tapes coming out, about how it was going to kill yeah. the record industry. And they, they fought it adamantly. And, um, like, if you bought a tape at a store, some of the cassettes came out at the stores, there would be like a little section at the top that would be punched out. So the like, if you tried to press record on the cassette, you couldn't record on it or what have you, right. you know? Right. <laughs> and yet, and yet, uh, yet, were they not the same people who were producing cassette machines and stuff as well? Correct, I mean, yeah. some, some of them were right. Weren't they, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You had Sony who was like fighting it. And at the same time they were, they were making boom boxes, you know, right. <laughs> they were They're making gazillions by yeah. sort of making the machines and stuff. But then, yeah, expecting people. It's the same thing, really, isn't it? You expect people to buy your machines, but you expect them not to do anything illegal with them. It's like, come on, you know. I mean, to give you an example why, why it does seem to seem nuts, it was illegal to have a, to a privately own a photocopy machine in Soviet Union right up until 1989. So they, 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 they kind of were, you know, they were terrified of people, like, making their own printed copies of things, presumably, you know, Sam is that documents or whatever but they just let people have real-to-real -real tape recorders it, it, i don't understand it's, it's it's a mystery it's a complete mystery i mean part of it may be that actually a lot of the people in the secret so secret police and kgb they were also music fans and they were they were probably just thinking mm. this is ridiculous you know yeah it's like the cops keeping the weed after they confiscate it <laughs> yeah yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah they, were, yeah. they were they were big fans of zines so you couldn't have a photocopier but the so right yeah you couldn't make a zine, of course, yeah, but yeah. Um, you could do it. You could do a real, real tape. So it just—it's <clears throat> one of those things. I mean, you know, the, the, that's the, it, there is a sort of history of the music industry, isn't there? Which is that, you know, technology brings about change, and and you know, like so, the invention of the cassette changed music, and the invention of the sampler changed music, and I think in Soviet Union, the the the, the wide availability of real, to real tapes massively transformed things, you know. And, and but, but these X-ray guys, they, it was life. Life was over, you know. And um, they just obviously a lot of them went on to to do dodgy other dodgy things and 
stuff like that. But uh, the X-ray era was done. Okay, yeah, okay, that's my other question. What did they transition to then when, once that market was gone? Just whatever else struck their fancy or whatever else made money? Or was it all like there was no – I mean, I have to assume it's pretty a loose confederation of people involved anyway. So it just kind of like all broke apart or there's still the networks there for, for, right, for something so, else? So, so obviously some some people carried on in, involved in bootlegging because, you know, that was still a big thing. Um, so renting out, you know, getting all of – records renting them out and obviously you know you make a tape and then lend the tape or sell the tape and stuff like that so there was still bootling going on so some of them did that others became like involved in the, like underground music production basically recording <laughs> underground singers um that was that, i wouldn't say it's big business but it was an important business um others i suppose just drifted into other black market things i mean you know it was still there was a big black market in all western stuff apart from music um you know clothes cigarettes magazines you know so a lot of them were sort of in that kind of gray twilight world of of that sort of stuff of um you know currency speculation you know currencies mm. that's all that so that they carried on Mikael, the guy i mentioned earlier um he he sort of you know carried on doing slightly fringe dodgy things mainly because actually he'd been in trouble with the authorities like i said he was a super intelligent guy but he got in trouble because of the things he got up to. So it became impossible for him to get a decent job. So, of course, in some ways, he was kind of condemned to do those kind of right. dodgy things, you know. Um, so, yeah, I guess they were... And there was, there was a big black market economy. Have you seen an evolution in the history of this? Are you still finding more and more stuff about this all the time? Or have you pretty much reached the end of the train of the... I don't know, like the archaeology of this, I guess, would be the term we could use or what have you. Yeah. So what happened was so we published a book and the book is sold out at the moment. So I'm working on the revised edition, which is an expanded uh, version of. And the, the reason it's expanded is, is more interviews, actually, and more details. So I think broadly when this book uh, comes out, the story is told. I don't think like there's any major facts or major you know things that we don't know about that are going to emerge it's possible i suppose but it's pretty unlikely there but there's always more details you know fascinating details and and um you know that so i think i think we'll we'll, we'll still find out more stuff but i think broadly it was a small underground community of people it lasted about 18 20 years and you know it's like a little window in time of of musical and audio history so I don't think there is that much more to say about it, actually. Um, just to tell the story and, you know, explore it a bit more. We do these, I hope we can bring it to the States. You know, we do these live events when we tell the story, but also we do demonstrations of how to record onto X-Ray from a, you know, from a live performance. And just in terms of what we were talking about earlier, people absolutely love to see that particularly young people love to see it because they have grown up in a world where music exists where i mean it, it exists in like ones and zeros on your phone, <laughs> on your phone. Yeah. but is it actually on your phone i mean you know this is the thing is that is it actually on your, i mean with spotify where is yeah. it you know and um, there is something magical, actually, for, for them uh, uh, in seeing the process of, like, somebody singing or playing and, you know, that performance physically getting written onto a piece of 
in this case, I an remember X-ray. when uh, vinyl then, started making a comeback, and everybody was like, "Oh, it's just hipsters, and this is stupid. Why would you want to get vinyl?" Like my my kids are very into vinyl, and I love it. You know, it's right. like uh, my son in law; he's really big on going to yard sales and flea markets and and getting old records as much yeah. as he possibly can. Yeah. And I think it's awesome. You know, it's 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 strange to me that this generation so far removed is going back to it. Because I remember the big joke was, oh, are they going to re-embrace eight tracks again? And I think um, last <laughs> year they were talking about how there's there's actually been advances in cassette tape technology now. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, if you go if you if you go to uh, 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 the big sort of uh, you know in, independent record store in uh, London, Rough Trade, um, if you go there, there's there's a whole cassette section there. Wow. <laughs> I mean, we're not. Talk- I'm, not I'm not talking about old cassettes from, from the 70s and 80s. These are new cassettes, right? People producing new cassettes. I, I think. I mean, it is a bit gimmicky, but I mean, um, the uh, I think the cassettes are a bit gimmicky. But the, the the vinyl thing, I think there's a there's a sort of pleasure in it, isn't there? And uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the, the artifact itself, but also, it, well, I, th- I think why you know what one of my theories about the vinyl revolution or renaissance is that. It's a way of curating what you can listen to. When you can listen to anything via Spotify, it's a bit difficult to choose. But mm-hmm. with a vinyl record, you put it on, you're probably not going to go and take it off after one track because you can't be bothered till it gets to the mm-hmm. end of the side. But in some ways, it simplifies the whole process. On a day-to-day basis, I deal with, you know, uh, I'd say 15 to 18-year-old youth. And uh, when, I, when, I, when I teach, and I brought the record player in once, like a small portable record player, and uh, I asked me, you know, I, I would say 75% of them have never seen one before or, or heard one heard one played. And they were, you know, it's hard to get them when they're very excited to, to, to be quiet and listen. And when I put it on, it, it was a magical process. I mean, they're, they're blown or blown away by the idea of like a needle dropping all, all the physical nature of everything I had to do to play the record. And right. the first question they asked was like, well, how do you skip ahead? <laughs> and I was like, well, I mean, you can, but that's, that's not really, that's not really what, what, it, what it is. And, but the thing they were most um, taken with was a tactile nature of it. I said, well, you know, I own this. I mean, like my, with my phone or, or whatever I have in the cloud, it might go away. But like this thing I have, you know, that this record I have, I own this. This is my thing that, yeah. that I can put away on a shelf and it's always going to be there. And like there was something magical in that yeah. 15 minutes I played for them that they, yeah. they were they were blown away by it. Uh, then then their second question, of course, was like, "Well, how do I transport it all?" And then, I, yeah. yeah, well, that is a bit, that is a bit of an issue. I mean, the thing is, I mean, the amazing thing about records is that, particularly with seventy-eight gramophone records, right, is that if you've got a seventy-eight gramophone player, you don't even need power, right? You can actually yeah, wind exactly. it up yourself, right? So if the world goes to pop, you know, the kind of riots and the ecological meltdown and whatever happens, if you've got a gramophone and some old seventy-eight jazz sides, you can still have a party. <laughs> Just what's envisioning in my head, you know, I'm just, it's like, it's like modern, modern kids all sitting around listening to a gramophone, you know, like, it's like the hipsters, you know, I'm listening to jazz. You've probably never heard of it before. I don't know. <laughs> I just imagine they all they have is like a Brian Eno uh, music for airports yeah. or something. We're like, that's, that's just something so bizarre. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're past the hour mark now, so this is the part of the show where I always give my guests any opportunity they have to promote or push anything out there that they want to. So, uh, yeah, if you've, you've got a website for this, if people want to contact you, are you um, are you going into something else with this kind of thing now, or is there anything more that you're doing with this? Are you finding different projects to go into? 
Yeah, so first of all, thank you very much for having me. I really, it's great and to talk to you guys. And thanks for coming back again, to, by the way. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure. You know, I love talking about it, as you can probably tell. It's great to talk about it with fellow, you know, music uh, enthusiasts because more than anything, you know, apart from the wacky, crazy records and the bootleg technology and stuff, this is a story about how much music matters. That's why I think it is still, you know, a kind of, it's an evergreen story. So we, uh, the best place to find out more about it and about the project is um, xrayaudio.com. That's x-rayaudio.com. There's lots of examples of records and lots of bits and pieces there. We, the, the book, as I said, is currently sold out, but I'm, we're going to publish a new version later in the year. I think a really nice thing for people to do, if they go to the website, they'll see there's a link to the doc, radio documentary made for the BBC. That's a, that's a, that's a, a, a nice listen uh, it's a beautifully put together program, and that gives a real feel for not only the sounds but the the people, because it's interviewing the Russian people that tell, told us the story. So that that's a really good way in. Apart from that, obviously I'm a musician, real the real Tuesday Weld. Um, I've got my own uh, 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 countercultural uh, show, which is the Bureau of Lost Culture on Soho Radio. So that's which includes this stuff, a little bit like your show, actually, not as esoteric and crazy as your your, your show, but uh, <laughs> because we we tend to talk more about um, usually some Russian stuff, but also really about the British counterculture. Um, so that's it, and it's um, it's been a real pleasure, you know, and I love what you guys do. So keep doing it. Thank you very much, sir. Well, yeah. we're going to let you go. Yeah, thanks again for coming back here and doing this again. I really appreciate it. I was so, so incredibly pissed off. That actually doesn't even begin to describe how upset I was when I lost the first interview that we did. But this is cool. We went into some different directions this time than we did last time. I, too. I was secretly happy that, again, I was able to get on the call this time. <laughs> what a dick. But anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> I think yeah, we thanks for being here. I think, we covered, I think we covered the ground, right? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me, yeah. Um, anytime that you're doing stuff like this, if you've got other counterculture ah, counterculture stuff that you want to talk about, don't hesitate to bug me because this is, um, and I think it's with Patrick as well, this is one of my big things is besides all the esoteric and weird stuff that we cover, I also like to cover counterculture and these little lost bits of strange history because what you, I said it before, what you're doing is very important because if you hadn't come along and done this, this would have been lost. This is something that we never would have heard about or never would have seen. And, you know, this, as you said earlier, this is important. It's a snapshot of, of kind of what music was and what people went through to get it and, and what it means in people's lives. And there's, there's so many things with this beyond the fact that it's just records recorded on the X-ray film, the process of what these people had to do to get this music and how they appreciated it. It's all very important. And if you hadn't done this, this might have been lost forever. It's something that we never would have heard about. So, you know, it's it's awesome that you did this. I'm, I'm super excited that I got to talk to you twice. And uh, again, thank you for being here. This was amazing. A pleasure. Thank you. So that was Steven. That guy is awesome, man. He's God, I'm so amazing, happy yeah. he came back and did this the show again. And 
it, it sucks because what well, you've probably had this happen before where you lose an interview and the guest says, yeah, you'll come back. But the magic three is, in a row, yeah. three in a row, three in a row. But when the guest does come back and you do get him back, it's kind of hard still because the magic of the initial interview is gone. You've already asked these questions. You already right. know the answers that are coming. So like part of me doing podcasting and interviewing people is the thrill of learning new stuff myself. That's one of the reasons why I love doing these shows, because I'm, I'm in it to learn new things, kind of probably the same way you are. So when a guest comes back and you redo the interview, it's like, well, now I have to act like this stuff is fresh and exciting to me, and, and I haven't heard it right. before. So, like you being all, here this time, it all feels canned, right? Like, yeah, it like kind of hey, feels here's canned. this thing I'm not, I didn't ask you before, but I'm going to ask you again. But you being here actually made it better this time because you asked questions that weren't asked before, and we got to go into different directions with this interview that I didn't go in with last time. And there were things that we touched on this time, but last time we spent more, you know, like our love of mutual love of different music and stuff, which we still touched on here, but not as much because we went into other areas. But, um, I need to. Um, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep this guy in my back pocket somewhere because his radio show is really cool and uh, smallest nation in the world. Yes, things like that really fascinate yeah. me. Those are the kind of, as I was saying off the air. Now that I've rebooted all this and I can do kind of whatever I want and go wherever I want, I'm feeling less of this urge to do jackass comedic funny stuff because I've got other shows that I can go to but I want to do more of this kind of stuff just not so much esoteric but it kind of is in its own sense that people have never heard of this kind of thing and it's kind of something that's relegated and pushed off to the side and, and little bits of history that people don't know about I always call it hidden history yeah that's ex exactly which I've always had a love for that kind of thing I've always had a love for strange weird and hidden history but now I'm finding that I, I want to go more into those directions and I want to push I, I want to push the envelope further into that kind of stuff and get further and further into that now the funny stuff i'm probably still going to do on other shows or i might still do it here and there but now it's it's all becoming exciting and it's it's re-enthusing me or making me more enthusiastic to go dig more for this stuff and find this stuff you know and to go down these rabbit holes mm -hmm. even further so you know he was like yeah i'll come back and i'll do it again which i was like great because the first time we did it we hit it off just as well and he was like okay i get what you're doing now because he was kind of apprehensive about coming on the first time he's like i heard your show on sex magic but hey i'll, I'll do this i'm here for the ride and i'm like oh shit you know <laughs> <laughs> you know all right and then once i had him on the air he's like okay i get what you're doing here i i understand this i, I like where you're going with this i i get the vibe i get where you're coming from and well sometimes all it takes is for you to like have a human connection with someone that you're an actual human being too as well mm -hmm. and you have common interests and then that opens up all kinds of gates yeah and he's he's really open busy guy you know he's got a lot of stuff on his plate so i was really happy that he came back and did it again because when we recorded last time i opened up the folder and there was nothing there where the, where the recordings go and i was just oh, yeah. like you know i started hulking out and just hulk smash and like destroying things like a little child but i was so angry <laughs> see my, my reaction when stuff like that happens usually i just get defeated and like sit down and just stare in the space like catatonic for a good five minutes well i've been trying to get this guy on the show for a while for like a long time and then when it all fell through when it, when it all came together and stuff it was like okay this is awesome and then when it was gone it was like this really blows this is this is bad this is uh, I, I think i got really drunk that night actually <laughs> well then yeah you were clear you were clear, clear thinking the next day i wouldn't say that i don't i don't think oh. i was clear thinking for a couple of days the only thing oh, i remember was i don't ever want to touch watermelon meat ever again um well i i like initially you just text me like it, none of it recorded it was amazing none of it recorded oh yeah and you were like oh good <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm so sorry to hear that, Ro. <laughs> I'm like, everything leading up to that day was going to go good. And then, like, the work life just derailed everything. And I, 
and you know you can edit this out or not like i had a plan to in a secret window while we recorded to open up a zoom call for work uh-huh. but i was so scared like it would open up at some point and i would have to answer one or the other uh-huh. it would just be a disaster i was like you know what i can't do that it's yeah it worked out everything everything turned out just fine i know it, it, it was good everything's good we're all good, good now everything's good yeah, let's go protest. <laughs> Safety with masks. Big masks. Uh, so anyways, um, yeah, your show, Almost Educational, uh, you know, where can people find you or whatever? You've been on here. I don't have an ad for you. I've never ran a promo for your show. So the only promo you get from me is when you come on my show and co-host. Ooh, uh, so I, I can I can make a spiffy 30-second one and cut one and give it to you. Well, the people can find you at almosteducational.com. Is that the website? Yeah, or? almosteducational.com is the website. There'll be a launch pad for wherever you can find it. Uh, uh-huh. We're on every podcatcher you listen to. Uh, from, it's like from Spotify to the whatever the Google one is. I don't even know what they are anymore. Uh, to Apple Podcasts. Um, they're all on there. Um, it's a potpourri of topics. There hasn't been a topic in a while. The last one was Canadian baseball, uh, where I had a Canadian on, and we redistributed baseball based on how we would make it in our own images, uh, which is which was an interesting North American. Now, if I had a Mexican, it'd be a true North American uh, view of baseball. But um, we talked a little bit about the, the recent history of baseball and the idea of like how you would safely reestablish baseball. And one of my our pet topics of like why baseball is a dying thing in America. Maybe it's good that it's a dying thing. Um, but for this one, uh, Dennis and I talked about the cultural um, – underpinnings of the cold war mm-hmm. and how there was a cultural cold war uh with like the scorpions and modern art the and winds Red of Dawn. change that yes. the, the cia the supposedly cia funded song the winds of change yes. which we don't believe but uh yes that is uh that is also going to be adhered to this show maybe in a two-parter i think i saw something on tiktok which made me think of you a couple of weeks ago there was a thing that went up it was something along the lines of what would the soviet union be like if it were to reform today and i said wow this is a topic that you guys would jump right into like you know all because you guys do cover alternate history what what if this happened there's a white whale out there there's a guy he stopped his podcast uh i don't know if i should promote it here but like he stopped his podcast for a while and he was from um he was from uh, a Baltic nation that was, I think it was Estonia. He is Estonian, I believe, that was occupied during the Cold War. And in a couple of his shows, he talks about if things went bad or south in terms of like um, when the Cold War officially ended and the Soviet Union fell apart in the early 90s and all those nations declared independence, what would it, how if, if hardliners took control and tried to take those back? What would it look like? And I've wanted to have him on for years to ask him, like, let's play it out. Like, how, how what, you know, we're talking about a, a nation with, uh, you know, nuclear weapons uh, and a pretty big military. How did it not just fall apart and, and descend into, into, you know, warring states? Or, like, if it were to come back, like, a reestablished Soviet Union, what would it look like? Like, who would be in and who would be the outgroup? But he, like, never responded back and he stopped his show. So I don't know if he does it anymore. Or if he's dead. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. But like, I, yeah, he responded to me via Twitter DM once, and he was like, "Ah, oh, let me think about it." And then pff, usually that's the kiss of death. They think. Of- I gotta wonder now if if communism 
you know, everybody says socialism and everybody immediately goes to communism. That's that's right. that's a different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're different things completely. Communism is corrupt socialism. But if it were to start back up again today with the lessons learned of things that happened in the past, you know, what what would that kind what would it be like now? You know, how much say because obviously you would have to give people some like China. People in China have some say of what's going on. Um, you know, they, they are allowed to have businesses and things, you know, are a little bit different. You have that going down like uh, in Cuba, you know, Cuba right. communism down there is different than what we actually think it is. It's still communism, but it's a very different thing. So if it were to start back up again, how would it be different now? Because obviously See, I, I, I always you, worry it would be some form of like uh, a nationalism merged with, with some kind of authoritarian communism where it would be some centralized government with a nationalist flair because like um, we talked about it with war with Dennis and I postulated war with China we spitballed things and had gotten way off the rails talking about uh, India invasion of North Korea at one point but like we talked about the idea that um you know, both like in Russia proper and China proper, these are huge countries. And we always think of them as like these monolithic places where there's some kind of like mythic one ethnicity mm-hmm. uh, as of like America only has one ethnicity uh, where they don't. And the, there is like in China, it's the Han Chinese, the ethnic Chinese that most people would think when we'd say China um, are in power. And really, you know, everyone else based either on religion or ethnicity are kind of held under a thumb. And so they're like, there's, there's communism for one, but not really communism centralized providing for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would have to imagine a revitalized um, Soviet Union where you'd have, uh, you know, Russia being at the center of the world and Georgia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, the Baltic nations all brought back on the fold would be something similar where, where the hierarchical, higher hierarchy in a tiered system uh, where, you know, Joseph Stalin, who was a Georgian, probably could not be president. You know what I mean? Because yeah. he's not an ethnic, an ethnic Russian. But so, I mean, it, I, I can't imagine it'd be awesome. <laughs> no, I don't sum. imagine it'd be awesome, but obviously right. having complete control over people, controlling everything that they do, everything that they say, controlling their decisions in life, obviously doesn't work. So right. you would have to have something in place to at least, at least give the illusion of you have some kind of choice and some kind of individuality and some kind of freedom of some kind, which is but, what you're seeing in countries like China and stuff, they do have some control over what they are. They do have, you know, they are open to certain things and there's certain things that are very closed off. So if you were to start it over again, you obviously want to have control and you want to have power in some way, but how do you do that but still keep your people from, like in America, we talked about here, like we can't not have our conveniences, you know, like this, right. this whole COVID thing and these protests and all this stuff. It's shown that, you know, people have to be able to go out and get their haircuts and have to be able to go out and get their Starbucks and do whatever. And if you take that stuff away from them, if you take away convenience, you know, that's really all what people want. They want to bitch about their politics, but they still want to be able to go up and buy a Big Mac, you know? Well, <laughs> can I recommend a book for you? Sure. There's a book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, The Surreal Heart of New Russia. It's a book I recently read by Peter, I'm going to butcher his last name, uh, Perestrovan, and he describes his journey into the Russian media, the, the Russian media landscape from really post i think 2004 2005 to when he gets kicked out in 2014 i don't know if he gets kicked out on a row in the book yeah. but when he leaves um and he describes a country that is essentially authoritarian with the illusions of like as if it's set up like a reality show of having a democracy like a veneer of democracy around it mm-hmm. uh and 
there's some theory in the book that he puts in that gets onto like media theory and, and I kind of my eyes gloss over and stuff, but it's pretty accessible and it's pretty weird. I mean, he goes to some, like he takes you on a tour of modern Russia to very weird places. Uh, and there's a second one where he has a book where it's called, this is not propaganda, uh, where it talks about modern propaganda techniques and you know, the old thing with, with going back to Russia and going back to what we talked about today's podcast and Dennis and I talk a little bit about the one I'm going to have out, uh, where Eisenhower in the fifties said, you know, we have to have a propaganda war against the Soviets, but the American public's not stupid. I think he's giving the American public a little too much credit. Uh, it can't look like propaganda. Mm-hmm. It's got to look like a Hollywood film. We have to sell like they love Hollywood films. We have to sell them propaganda through Hollywood films. Yeah, patriotism and things like that. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, I so yeah, uh, I think you should check it out. I will. I'll, I'll do that. May, you know what? Maybe that one will find its way into, into your box too. <laughs> <laughs> Me and you do this book exchange thing all the time. I have to laugh because since I've gotten to know you and we, we've become friends and hung out a few times, it's like I've had this weird influence on on, on stuff with you. Not like so much. Oh, you have like paranormal yeah, and stuff like that. Because like when you first met me, you're like, "Oh, you're one of those UFO guys." Granted, the situation that we were in, <laughs> yeah. And and now that you got to know me, you're more like, "No, no, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's not. It's not quite that. It's what it is." And me and you will sit down when we go out to bars and stuff, and we'll have these long, crazy conversations, and then we'll be like, "Damn, we should have recorded this." <laughs> yeah, sure. you, you've opened my third eye a little bit. I'll say that. Well, that's good. That's 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 yeah. what I try to do with people. It's not. I'm not trying to sell people on UFOs are real, aliens are real, Bigfoot is real. It's just a little bit of well let's you know whether you believe in this or not let's just take a look at it and let's have an open discussion about this and then whatever you decisions you make or whatever as long as you were open there long enough to at least look at this and try to you know try to go into a different direction with your thought and things like that now i'm not saying let's go out and get into the real crazy batshit conspiracy theories of the aliens you know grays versus the reptilians and things like that though i do find that aspect of culture very fascinating it's like, well, where can we break this down and, and, and actually take a look at this kind of stuff in a different, interesting way? So um, I guess let's call it good. Let's uh, let's call this a wrap and we'll call this a success. And uh, I got to do some editing on this show because there's a few points where we all had stuff to say so much at the same time that we were talking over each other. So yeah. hopefully I, by the time people have heard this show, I'll clean that up. So, uh, yeah, let's do this again sometime. And uh, thanks for coming on here and doing this with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for letting me ramble here at the end. No problem, man. Take care. Show me round your smoky mountains way down south. Take me to your daddy.
Sorry. 